0: Father, we thank you that you are a king whose first inclination, whose most pronounced trait is to have mercy. And it inspires our worship, our devotion, and our followership of you. And so we pray now as we place these readings before our minds and our heart. And as our children and those who teach and love them do the same, that that mercy and grace would be with us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This weekend marks the end of the church calendar. I know not many of you, like, study that kind of thing, but I just a little tidbit thought you might want to know. Um, And then next weekend begins Advent, which is the beginning of the church calendar, And so one of the ways of looking at the church calendar is that it builds to a crescendo of this weekend of celebrating Christ as king. As we've sung tonight and read tonight, this weekend is meant to remind us that God is king of all creation. And that this king has always intended and desired to have a people. But not subjects, not subjects the way you might think of some worldly king of another time or space or even of our time and space in another country, not a king who wants to make people subject to him, but rather from the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Up to Revelation 22, 5, where it says that we'll rule and reign with him forever and ever. There's this invitation to be the people of God as his cooperative friends. So just let that phrase settle on you for a minute. As his cooperative friends. Cooperation there meaning to call to our minds a willingness. And this is stunning to say, but kind of a mutuality. Not that we're the same as God, of course, not even close. But a mutuality in terms of we're participating in something together. I mean, in the garden, when he was done creating and showing his almightiness, he he said to the first humans, come be with me in what I'm doing. Come work with me. Come rule and reign with me. So a willingness, a mutuality is what God has intended. And then think of that second word, friends, cooperative friends, which is meant for me to call to mind the relational and interpersonal nature that this almighty king who spoke, and all the fish of the sea were there, who spoke, and there was plant life. That awesome God is calling us into this relationship of being his cooperative friends. And so our text this weekend, they focus on one way that God did this. So just picture God creation, creates the first humans, invites them to be his cooperative friends, The story unfolds and you get to the end of all things. And then in the new heavens and the new earth, we're God's people. What he's intended has happened. And we're ruling and reigning with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, how did God shepherd that? How did that? How's that all going to come together? And one of the ways that this all comes together is through the establishment of the monarchy. Now, if you know, if you've read the Old Testament much, you know that the monarchy was kind of both a good thing and a bad thing. And then in some passages, it's talked about as a compromise, that the people, you know, demanded a human king. They weren't willing to just have God as their king. In other places, the monarchy is set before us as something very useful. And so actually, in our readings tonight is this person of David, who actually stands for the usefulness of God in how from David to the coming of Jesus, God would make sure that what he was doing to cause this story to hang together would hang together. But David, of course, is sadly most noted for his compromise. And so even in the life of David, we see this. Well, if you look at your bulletin, I just want to show you how this weaves together. So if you look at our reading in Samuel, uh, we have these last words of David where David says not bragging. He's just observing his life. It's the end of his life. He's making observations and just stating things straightforwardly that I'm the man whom God chose. And in covenant, that's the other one of the other strands that weaves this story together in covenant. God made me king. And in the psalm, if you look at the psalm, we see David's cooperation where he vowed, I'm not even taking time to rest until I find a home for God. Meaning, until I can find a place for God's presence to rest in Zion, where what God wants done is done, I'm not going to rest. And then God in turn promises him, if your sons stay true to my covenant and learn to live the way I teach them, then there will always be a son on your throne. So here God is saying, this is exactly how I'm going to cause this to hang together. That this plot line involving the monarchy put into action by God and has been shepherded by him throughout all history is one day going to hit its intended target. God's intention is going to be done. And that's why when Jesus's first followers saw him alone in a quiet place and then out executing on this story of God in public in all these dramatic ways, amazing teachings, healing, deliverances stilling storms cursing trees they said lord teach us to pray we want to know what you're doing there in private because we see the affect in public and jesus said when you pray pray like this pray for god's kingdom to come he's the king and so pray for his kingdom, that is to say, his ruling and reigning to come, and its power, and its glory. Because when that happens, what you saw is sort of like an anecdote when I, when I caused Lazarus to come from the tomb. In that day, in that great day, when God is actually king over everything, there will be no more death at all. This was like a sign of the kingdom. This was a manifestation of the kingdom. So pray Pray, he said, that God's kingdom would come. Because as our passage in Revelation teaches us tonight, that Christ is God's king ruling and reigning on the earth. It's he who is, so John's picturing him presently, is moving on the earth, who was, has been shepherding this story, and who is to come and who will fulfill the story. So look at your passage. John sees this vision and... Uh, He sees that Jesus is the faithful witness. That is to say, he's humanity as God intended. He's the firstborn from the dead. That is to say, he's the proof of God's ultimate victory, that what God started is going to happen. And that he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. That is to say, there are rightful authorities on earth. Some who are good and some who are bad, they're rightful. But Jesus is the king over all of them. And John sees this, that he loves us. And he frees us from our sins by his blood. And then John says, and this is, you can see where uh, the notion of cooperative friendship comes in here. That he has made us to be a kingdom and priests. To serve his God and father. That is to say to work with God and what he's up to. So again, from the beginning of the story in Garden to the end of the story in Revelation 22, God has intended this people, and John in his vision—yes, John in his vision—sees it happening. And then John in his gospel reading, if you look at that, sees the sort of typical worldly conflict that goes on over this. Uh, in fact, one way to read the New Testament in, in, in interesting ways is to see it as kingdoms in conflict. And the kingdom of God will push forward, and then there'll be a pushback from the kingdom of darkness. And this is one of those moments where the kingdom of darkness appears to be winning. I mean, Jesus did not prevent his arrest. Evidently, he was too weak. Uh, His followers not courageous enough to prevent it. Maybe they decided Rome is too powerful. And then it all got confusing in the garden because Jesus said, don't fight it. But you can just picture the confusion and darkness and everything that would have surrounded Jesus being before Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of, or later in the passage, from this world. So my my kingdom is not of... Or from this world. Now this does not mean that the kingdom is airy. Or imaginary. It actually means something very precise. That my kingdom is from the ultimate concreteness of God himself in his kingdom. So my kingdom is not of this world. It's not from this world. Rather it's from the realm of God. Now, you may see those stickers all over cars, you know, not of this world. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's just a sticker or a brand or something. We see those things all over the world, you know. I mean, all over on cars, you know, this not of the world. I mean, I think I get what they're saying. I actually looked it up one day just to kind of see what it was all about. I mean, I think I get what they're saying. But taken the wrong way could actually be a not very helpful saying, (laughs) Because what Jesus, when he says that that his kingdom's not of this world, he doesn't mean to say that I'm separating from it. Not of this world does not mean having nothing to do with this world. And if that's what we think we mean when we put that on the back of our cards, we've actually completely misunderstood Jesus. Because Jesus said, pray that my kingdom would come precisely to this world. It's, it's the exact opposite. If you actually think that, well, what that means is that I'm going to like totally divorce myself from this world. We've actually misunderstood Jesus by 180 degrees. It's the exact opposite of what he meant. His, what he means when he says that my kingdom is not of this world. He means something like this. He, remember, he's looking at Pilate who is operating out of derived authority. He stands precisely like in a military chain of command. So he has derived authority from Caesar to Herod to Pilate. And so, you know, thinking in those sort of hierarchical terms, Jesus is simply saying, My kingdom is not derived from the sources of power in this world. Pilate, where you get power, or even Caesar from where he got power, that's not where I get my power. My kingdom is not derived from the sources of power in this world. But you need to hear this. His kingdom is for this world. This world that he created, his ruling and reigning is precisely for this world. Those are the meanings of those images in the synoptics of salt and light and and presence. It's, Its kingdom is exactly for this world. But Pilate doesn't get it. And so Jesus tries to explain it to him. You'll see in your reading there where he says, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And so this then explains Jesus's words and works. So when he tells the parable of the kingdom. Or in what's known as the Olivet Discourse at the end of the synoptics where he talks about what's going to happen at the end of the world. Or in the Sermon on the Mount or in any of Jesus' engagements with people where he's teaching. This explains what he was doing with his words and it explains what he was doing with his works. He was exposing truth. But not truth like 2 plus 2 is always 4. I mean that truth is fine. There's nothing wrong with that truth. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. And not truth the way we might think of philosophical truth, you know, like understanding things, um, you know, deeply just in terms of like meaning and the way philosophers think about it. Although that's really great work, too, and human beings need it. It's just not exactly what Jesus meant. When Jesus says, I've come to express the truth or witness to the truth, he means something like, I'm here to show you what righteousness looks like. This is, this is the term that you see all over the Greek New Testament, dikaiosune, translated almost always into English as righteousness. But it means something like to be truly good. Well, in a pluralistic world like ours, or in a pluralistic world like the first century, in what we now think of as ancient Palestine, what's the measure of Good. It's that plot line. Come be my cooperative friends. And then that thread runs all through human history. And at the end of the day, we will be the king's posse. And so what Jesus means when he says, I've come to show you the truth, he's saying, I've come to show you humanity as God intended. This is what God had in mind. This is Israel as God intended. This is humanity. Think of the first humans as God intended. This is humanity re-embodied in the new heavens and the new earth this is what god intended so when jesus talks about truth it's something more like alignment to divine intention to righteousness or to a kind of life now of course and this is the tension that's going on between jesus and Pilate. there's social and political implications to what jesus is saying because if jesus is king that means caesar isn't And the first Christians were all very aware of what it might cost them to say that. That's why Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? Because there was no patience amongst that hierarchy for something that would try to stand against it. There's no patience in Rome for what? There's somebody off in this distant little suburb of Palestine saying that he's the king of this people. That would not have been stood for. And so if Jesus is king, Caesar's not Herod's not. Pilate's not. And this, you know, one way that, you know, this story is often spoken of is it appears that Jesus is on trial. But, you know, what a lot of people often do with this text is actually it's Pilate that's on trial here. And one of the things that I think Jesus is trying to help Pilate to see that he cannot see is that Pilate is truly standing in line with authority. And that Pilate did have the right to hold this arraignment. That's really what's going on here. This is like an arraignment. And Pilate had the power to do this. And he had the power to give Jesus over to a trial and to even have him executed. But Pilate is standing in the wrong line of authority and in the wrong story. Jesus is standing precisely in his authority as the king of all kings and standing precisely in the story of God. So Pilate, though, he cannot see what's right in front of him. The, the eternal word made flesh, the way, the truth, and the life, as our passage in Revelation said tonight, the Alpha and the Omega. Well, I want you to think about this, because I think it's encouraging in our increasingly post-Christian day. When was the last time you saw the Roman Empire on Yahoo or MSN or Google Chrome. gone. That whole line of authority that everybody bowed to is absolutely literally and totally gone. But in the last 100 years from 1910 to 2010, the Christian church has grown approximately four times from 600 million Christians in the world in 1910 to 2.2 billion Christians in the world today. That's the real deal. That thread can't be broken by some little kingy. Even a big kingy like Caesar can't be broken. And this is one of the great delights of John's vision in the revelation is what John teaches us in this setting of worship. You have worship teaching doctrine. In this setting of worship, one of the things that John calls out of it is that things aren't as they seem. Here's Jesus before Pilate. It appears that Pilate has all the authority and, and, you know, Jesus is just going to get crushed. You know, this is like an NFL team playing a Pop Warner team. But John says, no, things aren't as they seem. And that's what this weekend does for us. This Sunday where the church proclaims Christ is king, when the church confesses that it bows to only to Jesus. It reminds us that things aren't as they seem. There's no Roman Empire today. But there are things that contend for our allegiance. All kinds of commercialism. Selfishnesses of all kinds. These things enslave us. You know, this is a very common story. And I'm not picking on politicians, but we just happen to have gone through a cycle. So this is an easy one. I mean, this story gets repeated literally week in and week out in Sacramento and Washington and everywhere. But this is a true story where a senator voted on something. I can't remember what it was now. But weeks later, he had a change of mind or conscience. And he, he wanted to go public and say, I really blew it. I mean, I did my best, but on further thought, that was a wrong vote. What do you suppose his political staff said? No way. You're not going to the Washington Post or the New York Times or to Fox News and telling them that that was a bad vote. And so the senator capitulated because getting reelected was more important than holding on to his conscience. So no Caesar out there today like that. But we kid ourselves if we don't think that one weekend a year we need to take serious. Who is our king? Because our post-Christian world is increasingly full of fear about being public about who we are. Pilate was trapped in his own political fears. And this feast reminds us that what's true of Jesus, it reminds us that he really is the king. And this then becomes a context for our own assessment and evaluation. This feast allows us to gain a new perspective, to wonder if we need a radical change of mind and outlook and ethics. Because again, the Revelation reading tells us the truth. Things are not as they appear. The God of the Garden and the God of the Exodus and Jesus the King will move again one more final time. Things are not at all as they seem. John has traveled to the future, you might say, like Michael J. Fox. He has traveled to the future and has brought back a true report, here it is. No earthly power has final say. That's how things really are. And John, coming back and telling us that, explains Jesus' poise in the garden at his arrest. You know, Pilate had arraigned hundreds of people like Jesus, probably scores of false messiahs. But he'd never seen anybody with the poise of Jesus. Why? Where did Jesus get that poise? Like, do you think he went to finishing school? Maybe read a lot of GQ? No, he's standing precisely in that story. He knows that this story that has its authorship in God and that has its telos or completion in God is nothing's going to stop it. So I have to stop now, though. (laughs) And let me just say this, that this feast weekend invites all of us to make a decision. To abandon every other loyalty and allegiance this is what's happening in that gospel passage when some of them say, oh, no, just let me go bury my father. Meaning like he's in a nursing home. They say he's only got two or three more years to live probably. Let me just go bury my father first. Or let me say goodbye to all my friends. Meaning like, you know, just let me finish this semester at school and say goodbye to my friends. And Jesus says, no, if you're going to follow me, this requires single hearted devotion that's what the the parables of the treasure buried in the field and the pearl of great price are all about when you see the king and his kingdom are you willing to rearrange the affairs of your life to get that kingdom so as we have our moment of quiet now just think this headline the feast of christ the king feast of christ the king And let's ask ourselves, when it comes to me, when it comes to you, is this feast or fact, a yearly ritual or a personal commitment? Amen.